It's been nearly four decades since the initial reports of the first recognized case of AIDS in the United States. In that time, a gradual accrual of groundbreaking scientific advances has brought hope to a formerly desperate situation. And HIV infection is now a manageable disease. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. As part of the journal's new series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. Fauci has co-authored a perspective article about the history of the HIV AIDS pandemic. Dr. Fauci, as you write in your perspective article, during the early years of the outbreak, there were no specific medications available to treat patients and their life expectancy was measured in months. So what was your experience as a scientist during those years? How did people in the field look at this new threat? Well, you know, there were different phases to the threat. We began seeing patients in the fall and winter of 1981, literally within months of the original MMWR that came out describing this new syndrome. And that period of time, it was mostly observational because we did not have an etiology. It barely had a name. As many remember, it was called GRID, inappropriately for gay-related immunodeficiency. And it was really a question of taking a look at what are some of the protein manifestations and do immunological studies to determine the nature of the immune defect, which is what, as a scientist, one of a few, there weren't very many scientists involved at the time because there really wasn't much scientific opportunity, mostly clinical care and clinical observation, but a determination and a delineation of the immunological abnormalities. Then when the virus was discovered and shown to be the etiologic agent in 83, 84, that's when the science exploded and the opportunities to take a look at both the viral biology as well as the pathogenesis in the context of the virus really took off. And it just was an amazing evolution of scientific discoveries from the first, once we had the virus, a diagnostic test, which gave us the opportunity to see that we were looking at the tip of the iceberg, and then the ability to in vitro test various drugs, both drugs that were repurposed like AZT and then targeted drugs. So the amount of things that were, I wouldn't say low-hanging fruit because it wasn't easy, but they were there to be picked all the things, diagnosis, therapy, and things like that. So it was extraordinary. It went from nothing when we didn't have the virus to the ability to be able to make what seems now many decades, you know, four decades down the pike as really rather simple, but they were so important for the things that ultimately brought us to the kind of therapy and other interventions that we have. In recent months, you've played an important role in the U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you see any parallels between the early years of AIDS and our efforts to understand and contain this new virus? The answer is there are more differences than analogies, but the analogies are when you are dealing in the first weeks of the recognition of something new, it's just an extraordinary feeling of both excitement and frustration because there's so much that you do not know. And the more you see, the more you wind up learning and not realizing that you may not have even recognized that before. Because if I can remember the first few days of getting involved in studying both diseases, almost every day was a surprise about a different manifestation. If you look now at what we're learning about the pathogenesis of this virus that is causing COVID-19 and the things we learned about the extraordinary complexity of the pathogenic mechanisms of HIV back then, even before we even knew what the virus is, here are the differences. The differences are twofold. One, 
in the beginning, we went for a couple of years with HIV without having an etiologic agent. With COVID-19, we started off with the etiologic agent. I mean, literally within days of the recognition, or at least the proposed recognition of this disease as a new type of disease at the end of December of 2019, it went from there to an absolute explosion of cases where within a period of a couple of months, it had transformed and gripped the entire planet causing an unprecedented lockdown of the planet. So the attention of the world was on nothing else but COVID-19. In the early days of HIV, we had to be essentially pushing to get people to pay attention to this. I remember the first meeting I had within months of a recognition of the syndrome down at HHS, which with everybody that was involved in studying this, there were about 12 people in the room. It was just not the kind of thing that gripped anybody except the people at risk and those who were involved. And then as the seriousness of this became apparent, then we had a lot more interest in it, both scientifically and from a public health standpoint. But if we could fast forward now and look at the ultimate impact, although very few people were paying attention to HIV AIDS in the early years, except a demographically restricted group. If you look at the accumulative burden of morbidity and mortality with HIV AIDS, like close to 80 million people having been infected, 35 million having died, 36, 7 million currently living with HIV, still having about 775,000 deaths per year and over a million new infections per year, the cumulative burden is extraordinary. That occurred over decades. Now with COVID-19, you have an explosion that takes place literally over months. We still don't know what the end game is going to be with COVID-19, but the dynamics of the infection was so, so different. So they're both brand new emerging infectious diseases, both of which were zoonotic, jumping from an animal host to the human and adapting itself well to human. That's the similarity and almost the identity. But then after that, everything diverges in a very different way. So you've alluded to the role of patient and activist communities in advocating for early drug availability for attention to HIV AIDS in the early days. Can you describe how that happened and what the long-term effects of that engagement have been? Well, I think with HIV AIDS, the engagement with the activist community is both historic and highly impactful in not only what it did for the disease of AIDS and the infection of persons living with HIV, but it really transformed the way we look at the relationship between an involved community and the people who are the so-called leaders in both the government response, the regulatory response, the scientific community response, because it happened at a period in the history of the relationship between community and regulatory and scientific authorities that at that time, many scientists, my own colleagues, felt that scientists know best, regulators know best, and although we have empathy with people who are going through a disease process, we know better how to handle things like clinical trials and scientific agendas because those are things that we've been doing for years. And then along comes a group of people who are faced with an unprecedented disease with no known intervention at all in which by the time you realize you have the disease, the life expectancy, as you mentioned correctly in the beginning of the discussion, literally is measured in months to a year or so, whereas the process of the development of interventions and the accruing people into clinical trials 
was a long drawn out process that worked very well for other disease, but was ill-suited for applicability to the HIV AIDS situation. Not to mention the lack of attention on the part of some government officials, particularly during the Reagan administration when the word was barely mentioned about the disease. The activists took upon themselves to try and get the attention of people who were so-called in authority. And the way they did it was unique. I mean, they were extraordinary, creative in their theatrical, confrontative, iconoclastic way of doing it, and they got attention. And I think one of the things that I feel most proud of is that I said to myself, why don't you get away from the theatrics and listen to what they were saying? And when you listen to what they were saying, it made perfect sense. And I made my decision very early on that even though I was one of the people that they were attacking appropriately because I was so-called the face of the federal government, that if you put that aside, don't take anything personal and listen to what they were saying, they were making a lot of sense. And I said to myself, wow, if I were in their shoes, I'd be doing the same thing as they're doing. And that's when things opened. We brought in, we listened to them. We didn't always agree with them. They didn't always agree with us, but we kept on developing a relationship of mutual respect and confidence so that now, if you look what's evolved, we have community involvement, activist involvement in everything from the determination of the research agenda to the operational aspects of clinical trials. All of those things now are so intermingled with input from the community, which now is really part of our accepted community, that I think to me in the history of medicine, I think the role of activism, particularly in the arena of HIV AIDS, is going to have a very important place in history that people will look back on. You've talked about the evolution of HIV treatments. What about the role of pre-exposure prophylaxis and of non-drug tools, for that matter, for reducing the spread of the disease? What approaches have been effective? Well, obviously, when you're dealing with a disease that spread the manner in which this is transmitted, so much has to do with natural type of behavior. So, I mean, obviously, the use of condoms, the limitation of sexual partners, testing to make sure that your partner and you are negative, et cetera, et cetera, is a way to go that's non-pharmacologic. But one of the most important advances that was made, and it really is so unique to medicine because long-term prophylaxis of anything is something that is always fraught with the issue of are you going to be developing resistance or other unintended consequences. But the extraordinary efficacy of the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis, if taken properly and according to directions, has really transformed the entire concept of prevention of HIV infection right now. So you have two things that are, again, concepts that when you think about them, you would not have realized how important they would have been, but you have treating an infected person and bringing down the level of virus to below detectable, making it essentially impossible for that person to transmit the virus to their uninfected sexual partner. And we have studies involving tens and tens and tens and thousands of condomless sex acts showing that you do not get transmission. So all of a sudden, treatment becomes prevention. And then you take that a step further and say, taking two drugs, and there'll be more coming, even long-acting ones, but starting off with the original one of two drugs in a single pill every day, if you take it every day, you can, again, more than 95, 97% prevent the acquisition of infection in an uninfected person. 
So you have clear-cut non-pharmacological interventions for prevention. Sometimes they are difficult to implement, particularly depending on the social and personal situation that you're in. But then you have spectacularly effective treatment as prevention and pre-exposure, as well as post-exposure prophylaxis. So the arena of treatment with HIV is really a major success story from a pharmacological standpoint. So all of those advances exist, but can you say in the United States and around the world, who still isn't being reached by these prevention strategies and these treatments? It's the long and unfortunately repetitive story of the disparities of health, both in the United States and in many respects worldwide. And the numbers really are disconcerting. There's about 13% of the population in the United States are African-American. And if you look at the new HIV infections, you see a very disparate proportion of almost 50% of the new infections among African-Americans, very heavily weighted, about 65% of them among men who have sex with men, and about 75% of those young men who have sex with men who are African-American. So the disparity in health once again calls attention to the problem of disparities that have really racked us here in the United States and in many other places throughout the world for a very long period of time. We were reflecting on that when you asked in the beginning of the discussion about the analogies and the differences between HIV and COVID-19. And yet again, with COVID-19, yet again, we see that those who get serious disease and even those who have a greater likelihood of getting infected and when they do get infected, have the comorbidities, which puts you in a very risk category of hospitalization, intensive care, and even death, are again much, much more disproportionate among minorities, particularly African Americans as well as Inex and Native Americans, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, the kinds of things that are wrapped around the social determinants of health. So there you get the echo of what we originally saw and are seeing now with HIV. You're seeing some of those disparities clearly manifesting themselves in disease outcome with COVID-19. Finally, you write that despite major scientific advances, there are still serious challenges in addressing the HIV AIDS pandemic and bringing it perhaps to an end. So what are the prospects for finding an effective vaccine or even a cure for HIV infection? Well, obviously, those are the two last holy grails, both of which have significant issues associated with them. With a vaccine, as I've often said, whenever you do vaccines, and we've had experience at least over the last few decades that I've been doing this, is that the body is the best proof of concept, and namely its response to natural infection. So the successful vaccines that we've made be it against smallpox, polio, measles, etc., there's always been a situation where even though there's morbidity and mortality associated with each of those serious diseases, at the end of the day, the majority of people under most circumstances recover. And the reason they recover, their body mounts an immune response to be able to contain the virus and ultimately eliminate the virus from the body and leave you with immunity that is protective against the same pathogen. So the body has told us that conceptually, there's no reason why you should not be able to make a successful vaccine, which we did with those diseases. The problem we're facing with HIV is unique. The body does not make an adequate immune response against the HIV virus to the point where astoundingly, 
the tens of millions of people that are infected, although there are elite controllers who can control it, usually through a genetic predisposition to be able to do that. The fact is there's no documented cases of anyone who's been truly established infection and eradicated the infection from the body, which means that we're going to have to violate an old tenet of vaccinology. is mimic viral infection, but don't hurt the patient, and you're going to wind up with a vaccine. Well, we need to take it one step further. We need to do better than natural infection in the induction of a response that we hope will be protective. So there's that reason why we don't have a vaccine right now, despite a number of what I would call valiant attempts, but we're going to continue to pursue that. With regard to a cure, it depends on what you mean by a cure. If by a cure you mean eradication, that's quite problematic because of the unique ability of the virus to integrate itself into the genome. And in order to be able to eliminate or eradicate that, what you have to do to the body, unless it needs it for other reasons like transplantation of stem cells and irradiation and conditioning, that it is one of the things where you don't want the so-called cure to be worse than the disease. And if the disease is suppressed virus taking a pill or two a day, you got to make sure that you weigh the risk-benefit ratio of a cure. If a cure is something a little bit different, namely, you don't want to be on antiretroviral therapy every single day of your life, there are ways around that with long-acting, with passive transfer of antibody, with a variety of things that you can do intermittently and continue the virus suppression the way daily antiretroviral does. Or you can say to yourself, you know, I don't, I understand I'd like a cure, but it might be, at least at this time, a little bit risky. That doesn't mean we're going to stop attempting to develop a cure. It's just that the cure is complicated by the fact that you always have to evaluate the risk benefit of doing something that might ultimately be harmful when most of the people who have access to care can have a drug, a single pill a day to suppress the virus. Now, let me just mention one other thing that's important is that this is so-called looking at it from one standpoint. If you look at it from another standpoint, the costs of keeping people on therapy for the rest of their lives when you have 37 or so million people living with HIV and more people getting infected each year, that that's the reason why we continue to pursue a cure because it may be untenable to maintain so many people for such a long period of time, namely an almost normal lifespan if you do not cure. So that's one of the reasons why we continue to pursue the science of trying to develop a cure. Thank you, Dr. Fauci.